Hello and welcome to this episode of the View from the Lab podcast. I'm your host, Andy Woods. In this interview, I talked to Rotendo Wazara, who is a conservationist based at Chester Zoo. Tendo has had an interesting educational journey to get where she is today, and we dig into her story so far. We talk about the challenges she's faced, both within the science she studied and her perspective as a black woman embarking on her STEM-based career. During her time at the zoo, she's been involved with some fascinating research on how best to look after elephants in captivity, and I'm sure you'll find her innovative approaches in her studies on their psychology fascinating. Without further ado, let's hear Tendo's view from the lab. Hello, Tendo. Hi, Andy. How are you? <laughs> nice to see you today. Um, I'm going to start off with a, a quick question about your, your current role and what you're up to at the moment, because I know that you work at Chester Zoo, which sounds like almost the dream job for, uh, I don't know, six and seven year olds across the country. Yeah. Um, that sounds like an amazing place to be. Can you just tell me about what you're up to at Chester Zoo? Um, and then we'll go back and look at your, your history and how you got there after that. Yeah, definitely. So for the past five, four or five years, I have been part of Chester Zoo's Conservation Scholars and Fellows Program. So it's a program that Chester Zoo um, started with their partners, their university partners, to support undergraduate, masters, PhD, and postgraduate students in researching um, animals in the zoo and also animals out in the wild. So um, they partnered with my university that I'm currently at, University of Liverpool, and they were supporting me in my study of their elephants. So yeah, my official title at the zoo is conservation scholar. And uh, we also get like badges and stuff, which is really cool. So I've got a badge that says I'm a conservation scholar. <laughs> so that sounds like even even better. So you work at a zoo and you work with elephants. That makes it even yeah. even, even more, more special. So um, to those who don't kind of know what conservationist means because I guess people in their mind have got different ideas about what, what they think a conservationist does is there a simple answer to that question could you kind of um tell me what in your mind what, what is your role as a conservationist conservation basically is um preserving or working to preserve um wildlife species but also their habitats that they live in and you can do that in different ways so it's either like myself I'm in the zoo uh looking at elephant behavior and trying to figure out how we can better have their um better protect them whilst they're in our care or you can be like someone else who's out in the wild observing the elephants in the wild but also making sure that their habitat is protected and um conservation is then us coming together the one in the zoo and one in the wild coming together and putting all our understanding together to make sure that you know, elephants or whatever species you're taking care of, get the best care from us. So is it more than just, I suppose, um, a numbers game, as in you want to maintain um, particular species? So maybe maybe looking at an elephant at a particular number. Is it more about the quality of the animal's life, if, 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 if you see what I mean? What's, what's kind of more important or does it obviously change depending on what kind of species you're looking at? Yeah, I think it depends on your species so obviously we want to improve the quality of every animal's life and make sure it's maintained so that they can live a normal life based on what kind of species they are but in like for example the eastern black rhino where their numbers are very low we are trying to um, increase their their population in the wild um, whereas elephants that have a lot of pop, a lot of um, individuals, but those individuals um, 
come into contact with humans a lot, we're not just trying to protect them from poaching, but also we're trying to protect their environment so that they don't have to get into contact with humans and that conflict doesn't happen um, from the beginning. So all depending on whatever species um, is being protected, it could be numbers, but it's also making sure that when we do have the numbers, they are able to um, live a natural, safe life. Okay. And obviously what you do is a very kind of STEM-based career, lots of science involved. When you think back to um, your, your life growing up, what was it that kind of made you move towards a kind of science background? Was it your personal interest as a, as a young child yourself? Were you inspired by a teacher or, or something else? What was it that kind of moved you, nudged you in that direction when you were younger? Um, I think um, it was a mixture of, of all those things. My parents were adventurers. They still are. And they used to take us on these amazing adventures, on these amazing safaris. Um, I grew up, when I was growing up in Zimbabwe, um, most school holidays, we'd probably be out on the lake or uh, at a safari park, something in the wild. And um, so that really... That that I that desire to be outside and that desire to be in the wild really came from them. And um, my uncle, actually, he's a doctor, my uncle Matthew, um, he'd always wanted to be a vet, but my grandmother didn't approve of him taking care of animals. So said, you have to take care of people. So he became a doctor. But because he always wanted to be a vet, he was always talking to me about the different comparisons between um, human biology and animal biology. And he always took the time to sort of um, you know, go outside and walk outside with me and tell me interesting facts about, you know, the dogs and everything. And then I had another uncle who was a primary school teacher and he knew I loved the National Geographic um, channel. And so what he'd do at the end of each term was get all the old National Geographic magazines from the library at the school he worked at and he'd bring boxes um, over to our house. And yeah, so I think a lot of it came from my family and, you know, my parents being outdoors people and my uncles being, you know, from STEM themselves, either being teachers, or being doctor. Um, yeah, that definitely pushed me to that, you know, um, like conservation um, career. In that direction. I was wondering, I was thinking, when you're talking about National, National Geographic, I remember that as a child myself when I was thinking whether, um, is that still a popular publication? Is that something you kind of dig into these days or is it something that's kind of passed you by with the kind of advent of the internet and information being more available? Is that something that you still look at now and again or is it, is it some more something from your childhood's uh, kind of National Geographic stories? I think the documentaries are still really iconic there's some that are still re really iconic like there's one called The Last Feast of the Crocodiles and um, that is an iconic one for me but I think over time obviously with the internet and everything it's more like I look at um their articles, but I wouldn't purchase um, the whole magazine now. But they have started doing um, this really great thing on Instagram, on Twitter, where they um, spotlight their, they call them National Geographic Explorers. So they spotlight wildlife photographers, wildlife conservationists, and different people in the conservation world. And they tell you a lot about their work, and they, they sort of walk you through it. So I've been really interested um, in that campaign that they're, they're currently doing. And um, did you, when you, when you talk about your camping trips, were they um, quite, not, I wouldn't say dangerous affairs, but I guess the places you were going, were there kind of animals you were fearful as a child or, be, or was it because your uncle was so into his animals, it never kind of crossed your mind? Because I imagine there, there might have been some 
animals that could have caused you harm on those camping trips? Oh my gosh, you won't even believe it. It was the elephants that scared me. (laughs) (laughs) I was like, it feels full circle because I think my dad usually was on the side of, oh, this is something really dangerous. And my mom always tried to pull him back and be like, listen, we've got young children. (laughs) So, um, we we always went to safaris that were like obviously family friendly but you know when you're in a safari truck you can't control whether the animals are family friendly or not and i i, I do remember being really nervous with elephants because they're quiet and you never come across just one elephant you always come across a whole herd of them so they're you know they're quiet big and you can't really tell you know what they're thinking yeah um which is why i love them now but you know as a as a young kid you're like oh my goodness this giant elephant is right really close to me so yeah i would say that they're the ones it's really funny that i think when you ask me now but that's what that that's what made me nervous as a child <laughs> yeah well, they, are, they, are, they are quite big i was thinking that is there any kind of advice they give you about elephants and you might use this today i guess in terms of if if an elephant seems to be a bit too close um should you should you scare them off should you is there a way of um behaving in a different way which means that they would be less interested in you um or what were your thoughts on that because obviously you obviously work with elephants in captivity but in the wild is there something you should do if you think an elephant might be coming a bit too close yeah i think so in um especially in a safari truck a lot of what we learned was you like you have to be still and kind of let them pass. Yeah. Uh, and it's about knowing what their basic, you know, body language is. So if an elephant is flapping its ears a lot, it's irritated and it's agitated. And it and in that respect, you kind of back up. But if, it, if an elephant family surrounds your car, it's just about being patient. And a lot of the times people think that they can out drive an elephant or outrun an elephant, but that's not the case. So it's about being patient. And recently I did a course um, on endangered species. And one of the advice that they gave is if you are driving at night, don't put a spotlight on an elephant because that's the one thing that they hate. And um, you know, that could be like your car's headlights or anything like that. So things like that, um, you just have to, be aware that they 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 are uh, um, they know that you're present and they and, and they want to be in control and you just have to be as still as possible and as calm as possible and get out of there as soon as you can. Okay, so so switch those headlights off. Don't don't think yeah. that's, that's going fright, to fright them off. Okay, that's a good that's a good tip. Yeah. Um, I was going to ask you about um, your your school because I know you went you went to quite a few international schools. Is that right? Were they in, yeah. in America and the UK and elsewhere? Where where did you where did you get your kind of uh, um, I guess they call it a K twelve education, I suppose in America. But wh- where where were you schooled across the world? Can you tell us about anything about the experiences you had in school? Yeah, definitely. Well, actually, I've never actually lived in the States, which is really funny. Oh, you're not? Okay, right. (laughs) So I lived in five different countries, um, Zimbabwe, Botswana, South Africa, Nigeria, and now the UK. And um, most of my schooling was um, in the first four countries. So I went to seven different schools from primary school to high school. And um, when we started moving, we moved from my dad's job. When we started moving a lot, the international school system was much easier to um, to transfer from. So different countries will have different international schools. So you can go to a French international school or German international school. 
but we went to the American one and it's a really easy system because you move and they send your transcripts over to the next international school. So there's no need for entrance exams or everything or anything because those schools are a big network. Yeah. Um, so yeah, that was quite <laughs> an interesting lifestyle to be in. So you were always the new kid, but you weren't always, you weren't the only new kid because, uh, you know, people were coming and going all the time. Yeah. yeah I was going to say, I guess it may, maybe that doesn't make it easier because if you are in an international school by default, I suspect that you're not always the new, new kid in town, so to speak. So there's always that um, similarity and commonality between students. And what made you switch to like a UK system? And when did you do that? And uh, what was the reason for that? Because I guess, as you say, it'd be easier easier to, because to, I guess the curriculums are very similar between American school. You know, the whole point of it is they are the same, I guess. Um, so why did you switch to a UK style qualification? Is it Was it later on? Was it towards A-level time? or? Well, so... When the Zimbabwean school system is actually quite similar to the British school system. Um, so when we first moved to Nigeria, that was my parents' first choice, getting, going to a British school. Um, but the British school system, I think, moves a little quicker than the Zimbabwean school system. So I ended up being, by the time it was high school time, um, here it's normal. I think high school, what we call high school in Zimbabwe and what ha- what the age here in the UK yeah. are, are very different. So I think I was about 10 or 11 when it was time for high school. And my parents were like, oh, no, 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 <laughs> we're not ready for you to go to high school. So then they moved me to a an American school. So actually, I moved from the British system to the American system um, where they are a bit... Um, schools school development is a, li- a little bit behind from the british school system um so i felt i think more comfortable with people my age and then um after high school i went i moved here and went to british university so it was kind of like a flip flop <laughs> so at one point i was learning british english and grammar and then the next point i was learning american english and grammar and so i can go between the two quite easily now <laughs> conversing both that's good that's good yeah um so when you when you were thinking about so your veterinary, veterinary science I think what a lot of people and definitely I think this is maybe um friends I had who did, who did biology when they were kind of preparing and the kind of sciences you have to do before you, you take on maybe a biological course or um or veterinary course is you've got to kind of go through the mill of doing um extra maths or extra physics or extra chemistry and sometimes I think people can't see the point of the physics or the chemistry. It's like a big hurdle to get through, to get through to the next stage, as it were. Uh, do you have any kind of uh, positive or negative um, uh, kind of uh, memories? Because I know you've mentioned before uh, that you had a kind of interesting chemistry teacher. Do you want to tell us about your your chemistry life and how you found chemistry before you moved on from it? Yeah, so my chemistry teacher in the 10th grade, um, so when you're about 16 years old, um, he was absolutely amazing. His name was Dr. Higgett, and I think he was, yeah, he was Australian. And um, he just, well, he made it really exciting. And um, I used to write such rigorous notes <laughs> in his class because chemistry made me so nervous because it wasn't something that I was natural at. And I used to make rigorous notes. And then he he kind of noticed that I was taking down every single thing that he was writing. 
And so what he would do was either like put a little smiley face on an atom or an electron, or he'd put a nonsensical symbol on it. And it kind of diffused it for me. So the stress that I had just diffused it. And it's so nice to go back to my like high school notes and looking at what he's done. Like, you know, the little symbols that I, I just, and um, he, I was always really frustrated. So I remember like yelling, I don't understand titrations. What's the point of titrations? <laughs> and he was really gracious and he like took time and, you know, kind of spoke to me whilst everyone else was getting on with the titration experiment we were doing, kind of spoke to me and explained to me. And I really appreciated that because it meant that I, I didn't need to be afraid of asking questions or not understanding because everyone else was way ahead of me. And I just, you know, I needed more time to process. Um, but then when I got to like, I guess, um, IB, so higher level chemistry, that was, that was a shock to my system. <laughs> that was even worse. That was even worse. <laughs> and it, it was very difficult. <laughs> um, but then again, it's that, um, it was okay that I didn't understand it. I needed extra help and that was okay. And it gave me the confidence to speak to my mom and be, and say, I need a, a chemistry tutor. And which, which really helped me in the end. I didn't get the best grade at the end of high school, but I was, I was happier than I was before I started chemistry. And it was enough. It was enough to get through. Yeah, and, uh, get, it was enough to get through. Exactly. To get, get to Nottingham. So, um, <laughs> I guess I was I got a perception that if you if you also had a great experience on the on the continent of Africa and you and you go to somewhere uh, like Nottingham, no no disrespect to Nottingham, it's a lovely town. But um, uh, did the kind of uh, the climate and the weather kind of uh, make you a bit sad at times, or was it just kind of a bit different? So you didn't really think about that because you know England can be a bit of a grey country sometimes, and that might you know when you used to big. Uh, uh, sky um, escapes uh, and, and beautiful sunshine. I guess that must have been a bit of a challenge, or was it not for you? How did you feel about the kind of the climatic change as you went to the UK? You know, I think I was definitely. I went to Nottingham's Open Day on like the best sum- day of summer, oh, okay. <laughs> so I was bamboozled completely when, it, like, because I I just kept going. It's so lush and green and sunny and beautiful. <laughs> But then when I actually moved, um, moved there for my first year, that's not what it was like. It was, you know, really cold. And I think it was difficult because I think uh, even on the coldest day in Africa, it's still a bit quite sunny. Yeah. Um, you can you can you can get through the cold because, it you know, the sun's out, whereas the UK, you know, it gets really dark quite early and. Um, if you're doing nine to five lectures, you know, you get up when it's dark and you leave the lecture hall when it's dark. So that was a cha- a challenge. I'm going to be honest. I, I think I've acclimatized, but the cold, <laughs> the cold still isn't my friend. <laughs> but um, yeah, no, I've, I did enjoy myself. I, I really loved it there. Yeah. So you've, you've got an umbrella now, have you? Yeah. <laughs> yes. I, I now, I think I now understand British weather. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, so I was gonna, um, in your kind of bio, you talk you you've done some work with with um with lion uh, lions and um how did that come about? Was that kind of during your degree or after your degree? When did you do research on that? Was that part of a university project? Or was that post university? Yeah, so that was part of um the placement um section of my masters. I did a masters in veterinary sciences 
And um, as part of it, we had to do some sort of placement in industry. And so I chose to go back to um, Zimbabwe and get more um, experience in conservation. So there is a um, lion, they call it like wild rehabilitation. So you um, have a breeding program in captivity, but the intention is you basically rehabilitate the animals to a point where they are able to basically live in the wild and then you release them. So I was an intern there and yeah, it was most of the time research studying the lions. They did have a pride that they put together and they wanted to study how well they were, um, they were working together, how they hunted, how they um, um, engaged with each other and also how they um, um, basically uh, mated and had um, um, cubs. I want to say calves because I'm thinking about elephants, but um but yeah, so that's what I did. And then I also um, helped with rearing some of the cubs that they had, um, which is not usual. It's only when, you know, a mother rejects their cubs that we have to intervene. But I helped with that sometimes and any health checks that were needed as well. Yeah, it was really good. It sounds like a really kind of, you see, you've already got two of the best, animals. you've got elephants and you've worked with lions. That's the, yeah. <laughs> you, work, you choose all the best, best animals, you see. Um, so... Because you, you did change, you, you changed direction slightly, didn't you, see? Because you were doing veterinary science and then you changed course to your, your veterinary master's. Um, and was, was that a conscious thing as you felt you, your life wanted to go in a different direction? Um, what, what led you to that decision? Yeah, so um, unfortunately, in my third year of vet school, I had um, a family tragedy happen. And because of how... Um, how much it was how difficult it was it impacted um my studies and i basically failed exams and i just wasn't in the mental space to continue and it it was so obvious because i just kept failing a lot of stuff so um what i then did was like i was at a point where i couldn't complete my um degree but i still wanted to be part of the veterinary um conservation world so I found this um, master's program, which was a master's in veterinary sciences, but it also had a conservation um, focus that I could choose. And that was absolutely brilliant because I always wanted to do conservation and being a vet, I was going to be a wildlife vet anyway. So um, even though I had to put the, you know, the veterinary dream behind of being a surgeon, I could still continue with what I wanted to do um, through this master's. And your your work, your PhD was is that when you kind of moved towards the elephant side of things, or was that a postdoc thing you, you you've been looking at? What was the elephant? Because you talk about um, of uh, looking at your profile, your the kind of experiments you do of elephant fecal samples, which I was very interested in. Um, and uh, can you tell us about that? And uh, how did your research? What were you doing with those fecal samples and those those elephants? Was this at Chester Zoo? Yeah. So. Um... During my master's, Chester Zoo, like what they tend to do if they have um, research that the keepers want doing, or but they just don't have time because they're taking care of all these animals, they will offer projects to students. So during my master's, they offered, you know, just a four-week project looking at elephants, but specifically the impact of moving one elephant to another zoo on the rest of the herd. Okay. So they had... Um, a female that wasn't um, basically uh, living well with the rest of the herd. And so they 
for her health and safety and the, the, the other um, elephant health and safety, they decided to move her to another zoo. So, but they wanted to know if that was a good idea or a bad idea. So they wanted to look at how her departure affected the bonds of everybody else. So that was, you know, a four week project in the masters. But what I found was by the time I presented everything, their um their bonds had completely changed <laughs> already. So um then it was like, okay, well, the elephants are more dynamic than than we think. So this will be better as a PhD study, four years. And not only looking at their bonds, but also looking at how their bonds affect their health. So that's where the fecal samples come through. Um, so with um, a lot of zoo animals, it's safer and less invasive to just use their poo to look at hormones or any changes within their body. And so you can look at um, reproductive hormones, um, you can detect pregnancy, and you can also detect stress using um, fecal samples. So I was focusing more on stress using their fecal samples and looking at how, you know, different social events may have affected them um, because the there's research research that shows that the stronger your relationships are, um, the more you're buffered from intense uh, stress or intense social stress. Okay. Um, so if you've got a close friend near you, you're more likely to recover from something um, stressful quite easily. So that's what I was looking at. And so I sort of looked at different major events. So the birth of new calves, separating um, elephants if they needed health checks, and also the death of calves. I think people know at Chester Zoo um, through their TV show that some of the calves died from elephant herpes virus. So looking at that and then seeing how um, their social bonds buffered or didn't buffer um, them from uh, intense stress responses. So can you, um, get a bit technical now, but can you measure from an elephant's fecal sample? Can you, can you um, look at markers like, um, uh, do you look at things like oxytocin or serotonin or um, other types of hormones? Do they have the same hormones as humans? Or um, what, what, what markers are you, are you looking for in terms of the way they change, is there any specific ones that you kind of track to, to make a judgment on their, their how they're feeling, I guess? Or Yeah, so from my understanding, so oxytocin and serotonin are a little tricky to get from um, elephant fecal samples. So what has been done is through those types of hormones they would get from blood samples. Okay. Um, so in some zoos, elephants are used to getting blood, um, blood samples taken from them daily. Yeah. But fecal samples um, are usually used for getting hormones like progesterone and testosterone and um, cortisol. Um, that's the more reliable technique. So the um, it all really depends on what the uh, the hormone is and whether there's scientists looking for that. <laughs> <laughs> okay, okay, but it can be tracked down. So, um, when you're thinking about, I mean, d d did your research lead to kind of, I guess, advice to um, other zoos in terms of pragmatic things you could do to improve um, the social welfare of elephants in in captivity? Or I guess we're talking about um, is is there are there things that you, as a result of your work, you think are positive things for elephants in zoos across the world? Yeah. So um, I think. What my research was 
the first thing was the techniques that I was using. So I was literally just watching the elephants and recording how they how close they were to each other and what kind of interactions, whether it's a positive or negative interaction, um, it was. And then I used uh, what is called a simple ratio index to um, give a number on a scale of zero to one, how strong are the relationships? Um, one being strong and zero being weak. And that kind of information is very easy to collect. So that was the first um, thing that I wanted my research to show that keepers could actually use this technique on a regular basis because there's a lot of health information that they collect anyways for elephants on a daily basis but um, social um, social information about their social behavior is sometimes really time consuming for keepers to collect so that method was really important to show like this is something that is keeper ready and they can include it. Um, the other the other thing that um, was really helpful was that there's a big movement of keepers that look at sleeping behavior um, as a way to kind of um, describe the social dynamics of um, elephants because elephants sleep together and they they have specific sleeping partners. So my research was also used to validate that technique. Um, as being very useful for keepers. And um, the so if keepers don't have time during the day, they can just go back to CCTV and look at their sleeping behavior. And so that's so easy because every zoo has CCTV on their elephants and they can go back and you know rewind it and record it over time. Um, and then the other, like the most important thing was saying, showing that family groups are very key elephants live in family groups and they rely on their mothers and their grandmothers and their aunties um, and their fathers as well to show them what it is to be a normal elephant. So how you behave, um, the elephant social etiquette, if you'd like to call it that, and also how to raise um, infants. So they're elephants who have had experience either watching a birth or helping babysit their younger siblings are so much more successful of being parents themselves later on in life. So it was very key to show that actually being in a family group is really important. And a lot of a lot of zoos already have that, but I think it's just having that written down <laughs> as like scientific like evidence that this is um, how we should keep our elephants. These are kind of good good approaches. I guess it must be quite difficult to. Uh, to match, I suppose, the chemi chemical responses to maybe more descriptive ways of talking about the way elephants sleep or way the way you might observe them in the day to day, and then matching those up in terms of, uh, I guess, looking at th this. This, I suppose, you're looking uh, in terms of their physicality. This, this elephant, I guess, lo looks happy, I suppose, and then marrying that up with does that base in the, the hormone levels in um, from the chemistry side of things. So I guess that's quite interesting, kind of. Uh, and quite difficult, I assume, to try, and, to, to try and link those two ideas together. But fascinating, fascinating work. Um, and do you think, um, talking about zoos generally, it's obviously it's a bit of a diverse opinion on um, zoos because some people are very against zoos and, and they think they shouldn't exist uh, for whatever reason. What's your position on you know, kind of the positive effect of zoos? Because obviously some people do think, oh, why are these animals being made captive? Why shouldn't they just be, be in the world? But what, what's your take on uh, zoos role in in helping animals and conservation yeah um i think i would 
firstly understand why people are against zoos because I'll be honest like I growing up in Africa in Zimbabwe and South Africa and Botswana where you know you've got these big reserves where animals are out in the wild you you do like I did feel like I, um that I, I I didn't feel like zoos had a place but um actually working in one um there's a lot that zoos do now so yes in the past they probably didn't take care of their animals as well as they could have but a lot of zoos now are regulated by larger governing bodies that expect that a zoo is catering to the welfare of each animal so that's physically socially and psychologically so those are the expectations that a lot of zoos are given and also they play a large role because they're also centers of research that um wild um wild populations rely on for their care so a place like chester zoo does a lot of um hormone sampling they do a lot of observation studies they do a lot of science that is needed to um direct a lot of the um the operations that happen in the wild in terms of the conservation of different um species and then um zoos also help with like um being a bridge between wild and captive con conservation so for example um breeding programs that um breed a specific species in the wild sorry in captivity and then move them to the wild most notably there were um uh, black rhino that were um bred in i think in the uk and then also in europe and they were moved successfully to africa to the wild so um zoos have that role where maybe you know you've got a few individuals in the wild but are never going to see each other you can move them into a captive setting, have them breed, and then move them back. Um, so they they play a very positive role in a lot of um, aspects of conservation. But I always encourage people to do their homework on different zoos and see what zoos, um, what kind of conservation activities zoos are doing. They usually have that on their website anyways. So it's not like it's a big secret um, in terms of uh, what they're doing. So they're usually really proud of their conservation work. So I always encourage people to do their homework about um, a zoo before they visit it. Okay, and what kind of, what kind of extra work they're doing outside the yeah. um, looking after animals where they are. Um, now, talking about um, kind of inspiration for conservation, uh, I know that you've said in the past when you were growing up, um, the famous conservationists were tended to be um, uh, white men. Is this changing in uh, the conservation field? Uh, is, is diversity um, becoming more uh, prevalent and important? What, what are you noticing in your experience, in your career? Yeah, so I was like, I'm just thinking of when I grew up, I was obsessed with, um, you know, Steve Irwin, Dr. Brady Barr, Jane Goodall, David Attenborough, you know, like, people who are still um, really um, iconic in the conservation world, especially for young conservationists. Yeah. Um, but it's definitely changing. Um, and I think with social media, especially, there's a lot more visibility on different types of conservationists, like eth ethnically diverse conservationists, because let's be honest, 
you know, Instagram, Twitter, you know, are more is more accessible um, than, you know, TV. And I think we can even go into like, you know, diversity in media. It's a whole nother thing. But but I think um, social media has definitely made a lot more conservationists um, visible. And I can think of um, a few people like um, there's uh, Dr. Paula Kahumbu, who actually has started a wildlife show in Kenya. And through that, she empowers wildlife black wildlife photographers and black wildlife researchers and she also spotlights them so there's different people like that um who you can find on social media and so i think i feel like it's not that they weren't there before but the visibility was was more limited and um now you're seeing more of them and again national geographics spotlights people from um different countries especially local conservationists and local experts and they spotlight them and they give them the national geographic explorer title so you know um that they're official i guess quote unquote <laughs> sounds, sounds really positive do you, do you feel like being a, um, a black woman in conservation has had any issues for you in your conservation journey at any point yeah i i feel like for the most part, my conservation journey has been great and I've enjoyed it. However, I think there have been situations where, you know, I'm at a conservation conference and um, I don't know, for some reason, people feel like they need to, to um, bring up the fact that I'm the only black person in the room or uh, they're surprised of my level of English, you know, and stuff like that. Um, or there's been times where um, I've had missed opportunities. Um, so sometimes I may be more qualified than than a per than the people that are going up. I'm going up against for an opportunity, but every single time I'm overlooked or even ignored. You know, sending emails to different institutions and they see my name and then not respond, but then you know, respond to a colleague who's sitting down a few days. <laughs> yeah, in the same office, basically. So there's been that. And um, even, you know, having your having my knowledge questioned, you know, my mm. level of knowledge or level of expertise questioned, regardless of the fact of, you know, however many degrees I have, or what experience I have, it's just that not necessarily challenging because obviously in science we we challenge each other's knowledge and we want to you know question but actually questioning like do you, like how do you know this like mm. why do you know this like who do you think you are to say this kind of thing so um yeah there there have been those moments and i think it's it's being confident in yourself and knowing that you do deserve to be in that space but also being aware that sometimes you you will have to travel the journey on your own for a bit in certain areas and um, being okay with that. And do you think, you mentioned things like Instagram, et cetera, becoming more accessible um, to, to people from all, all backgrounds. Is there anything that um, the conservation world you think should be kind of doing a bit more of than they are at the moment to, to, to promote that message? What do you think they should be doing at this time? I think, um, I think it's about spotlighting local partners so most of the time um a lot of ngos will choose to spotlight their you know their western 
um, colleagues who are working in like wild areas, but they don't spotlight the local partners, their colleagues, the local experts from those areas. Yeah. And, um, but also the narratives that are expressed need to change. So for example, it's very common to for NGOs to show video of a village, you know, a village in Kenya um, chasing, aggressively chasing elephants out of their fields and throwing spears at them. And when you look at the comments, it's, they're very hurtful and, and people are calling for the death of those people. But that's one side of the narrative because those people, it's their livelihood and elephants are dangerous. Um, and so, but they, you know, it's changing that narrative. So removing black people or people of color from being the, the uh, criminals or the antagonists of the co conservation story, but actually telling holistic stories and saying, you know, wildlife conflict, human wildlife conflict has losers on either side. And we're trying to work to make sure that it is a win-win situation. So um, especially on social media, a lot of the, the narratives of people of color need to change from moving them from being, you know, the antagonists to actually people who will also benefit from, from wildlife conservation. Yeah, definitely. And um, yeah, I say that that full picture is so important in terms of knowing the context of uh, whoever those people are involved and what economic issues there might be all wrapped up in, in those um, situations and uh, not taking that kind of one-sided view. And I can see how the, Sometimes that is not portrayed in a in a in a good in a good light and a and a and a balanced light, I guess. Definitely, yeah. I was thinking about your obviously your work and um, important work as you do in Chester Zoo. Is there any is there anywhere where would you direct people in terms of um, where they can find out more about you or your work or could, if they wanted to contribute to your work in in some way and financially even to the Chester Zoo project? Where's the best place to kind of check out what you've been up to? Yeah, so at the moment, the best place to check me out is on the Chester Zoo website. So they've got Act for Wildlife, and they've got an elephant. Um, they've got a their main elephant project at the moment is supporting research on the elephant herpes virus. So if you go to Chester Zoo's Act for Wildlife page, they've got an elephant page in it tells you everything. And then I've also got a scholars page on there that gives you updates you on everything. At the moment, I'm working on publishing my work <laughs> into more journals. Um, so until then, um, a lot of this research is, um, is through Chester Zoo at the moment. So if you just go on their website, you can find me very easily, Rotundo Azara. <laughs> Do you have your own Instagram account as well that's just focused on maybe not your personal one? Do you have like a, a conservation one you like to? At the moment, no, it's very mixed up, but I do okay. have a Twitter. So it's Tendo Wazara. Um, yeah, just Twitter at Tendo Wazara, and you can find me quite easily. Brilliant. And I was going to ask you a bit, maybe a bit of a silly question. I don't know, but at the end, just to, just to kind of almost wrap things up, is that I know you've, you've said, you've talked about all the cool animals you work with, like lions and elephants and all the rest of it. But um, obviously, you are UK, UK based at the moment. Is there any animal from the UK that you've got a particular soft spot for or are they a bit boring and brown and uh, a bit rubbish um, 
in terms of uh, you know uh, our, our, our animals aren't very colourful, are they? They're they're a bit uh, very bit dirty. Is there any animals that really, whether it be a bird or uh, you know, um, is there anything that really you've taken to heart um, now you've been in the UK for a while? Yes. Uh, oh my goodness. Um, I it's actually two animals. <laughs> so I'm really obsessed with foxes because foxes. Okay. Yeah, because I. Just the fact that they're, you know, obviously you've got urban foxes, but just the fact that they're all around and, you know, you can be walking down London and you just see a fox. I know most people think they're mangy, but I'm determined that once I have my own garden in the countryside, I will befriend foxes and they'll come into my <laughs> garden. Um, and then also um, badgers, I think. Um yeah, again, they're because they're so different from what I've like seen. Um, I I tend to um to really be intrigued when I see one. You know, I'm always kind of you usually see them like running across the road or something. But there have been a couple of times on a run when I've I've wanted to to follow them where they go. But my husband's been like, no, <laughs> badgers aren't usually happy, so don't try and follow it. But yeah, so. Yeah, foxes and badgers. Yeah, I the think cu- the so cunning funny. foxes and, and the badgers. Yeah. They're very lucky because I've never seen a badger. The only time I see a badger is when it's been flattened in the road, uh, usually. Um, I know, but it's so rare to see them. Yeah, um, but yeah there have been a couple of times, yeah. That's no, really, we're very, very lucky. You obviously run, run some good places as well. Well, thank you very much, Tendo. Good luck with your research. Thank you very much for joining me on the View from the Lab podcast. And um, I hope your, your career goes from strength to strength and I shall look out for you on the National Geographic uh, channel at some point. Yes, thank you, hopefully. Thank you, thank you for joining me today. <laughs> thank you. We've come to the end of another View from the Lab episode. I hope you enjoyed my conversation with Tendo. It definitely made me think differently about conservation and in particular, the great work that happens behind the scenes to ensure animals can thrive in these captive environments. I know Tender will have a great future ahead of her in her conservation career and I wish her all the best. Do you know anyone out there who has also got an interesting STEM-based career story? Please get in touch and send me an email at andy.woods at pearson.com. Thanks for listening and I'll see you on the next one.